Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm honored to welcome today Eric Topol, American cardiologist, scientist, and author. He is founder and director of the Scripps Research Institute and a professor of molecular medicine. Welcome, Professor. Thanks very much, Alexander. Great to be joining you. It's, it's great to have you here. I wanted to start with the big picture question about this pandemic, which is, our consciousness as a society and capacity to prepare for what may be months in the making, years in the making. Um, do you think that the climate in this country is more anti-science than it's ever been? I don't think there's any question about that, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it starts at the top, and what we've seen is unprecedented uh, suppression of science, and even worse than that, just direct uh, overriding uh, science and scientific principles. So that has uh, really uh, nurtured, nurtured, unfortunately, a much worse situation. And, and that worse situation is one that likely will be further exacerbated without new leadership that is outwardly, explicitly pro-science, and that starts with a national mask mandate. Do you think that if we're ever going to confront this virus successfully, we will need such a mandate? Well, that's just well, that's one just feature one. that would help. Uh, I think it's, it's a multi-pronged strategy. Uh, we've never gotten suppression or containment of the virus from the get-go. And so you know, using masks... Uh, for a stretch uh, would be helpful, but many things besides that, like rapid testing at homes for every household uh, would be another uh, part of the strategy that we should have already implemented months ago. And what would you say would be the most vital steps to implement at the outset of a new administration since this administration, as has been reported and very clearly documented, has been the source of disinformation, disunity, incoherence, and really incompatibility with any successful uh, deployment of uh, pandemic response or vaccination regime. What steps need to be taken immediately by a new administration and what steps need to be sustained by a new administration? Well, I think the problem, of course, is there's, that's months away and only if we're fortunate to see a change. Uh, and we may be in a deeper hole by then than we are now. Uh, but assuming that we somehow weather this period, this phase, because we got to get through all the way to uh, late January, then we're talking about, uh, you know, digging out uh, with getting rapid tests. Hopefully by then they're, they're out there and they're widely uh, being used to know if people are infectious so they can stay home and others can get back to more normal pre-COVID life. But we will have by then uh, neutralizing antibodies most likely, which will be helpful in the early stages in, in high-risk people. We will have, I think, pot potentially other drugs to help reduce the toll, the, the hit of this uh, illness and disease. So I, I'm still optimistic that irrespective of this gap in time, we'll, we'll make some progress, but we're paddling upstream instead of all uh, paddling together. That's the problem. Uh, but I do think that with new leadership at, uh, at FDA, uh, at, uh, or, you know, new direction at least, new CDC, 
restoration of the public health agencies to provide the stewardship that they should have been providing throughout the entire pandemic. Uh, I hope they'll see that immediately uh, in, in a new um, administration. What we have seen is rigor on the front lines, the rigor of professional medical corps um, and a tremendous undertaking on the part of uh, local hospitals and medical staff, uh, nurses, first responders. Um, thus far, it's been sustained. Where, where you are, um, what do you find to be um, you know, the driving force at the local level of treatment and testing and contact tracing that has been most helpful in the absence of the national leadership? Well, as you say, Alexander, the medical care, you know, has been, um, for the most part, really exemplary. I don't know that there's been a time in, in decades uh, that we haven't seen uh, all healthcare professionals step up to the challenge. And indeed, it's been a challenge. And although there's been certain parts of the country that got heavily a burden, it's a challenge everywhere because you never know if you're going to be um, potentially infected. Uh, you never know if you're going to have the right protective gear because it's still in short supply and rationed. So it's, and, and, uh, and that's not just for healthcare, that's all essential workers. Um, you know, I think that it, it's hard now because we've gone through, you know, almost nine months of this and uh, it's, it's tiring. It's, you know, it's, it's a marathon and we have many months to go before we, you know, get prevail, which we ultimately will. So I think the fatigue factor uh, and also the complacency factor, letting our guard down. These are all issues that we have to grapple with. And of course, there are the COVID long haulers. And those are folks who've contracted the disease and who've experienced weeks, if not months long symptoms, and sometimes devastating, uh, destabilizing conditions. In your field of cardiology, uh, what have you found most remarkable about sort of the intersection of, of COVID and uh, the cardio system? Right. So, you know, just last week I wrote a, uh, a paper in science in science magazine about all the different things that COVID can do to the heart. And it, there's a lot of, it's a pretty vast array of, uh, of damage and harm that, uh, that COVID can uh, induce uh, we don't know how frequent it, it occurs um, because this is all new and how long lasting it is. Uh, and you've already seen, you know, for example, young athletes, college athletes, professional athletes that have really been hit hard with this. So we need to understand uh, not only how frequent it is, but how to prevent it uh, and why certain people are susceptible. You know, that we have no clue really about that yet. But in your context of long haulers, long COVID, the heart is just one area. You know, more typically the symptoms that can be seen are, you know, just profound fatigue, debilitating, shortness of breath, and chest pain and joint pain, and, you know, and many of even fever. These symptoms that can be so uh, enduring and take people out of the, you know, the quality of life, no less their work. Uh, they, these are really disturbing. Again, we don't know how frequent it is occurring. We don't know how the immune system is kicking in to, to do this or how to prevent it. So in parallel, there, and there's an intersection between the heart and the other aspects of long haulers, long COVID, but th there's a lot of work to be done. There's hardly been any 
major science studies on the long COVID immune system response, and we have to get that going as soon as possible. It really seems, doctor, like COVID has intersected with every system of the body. Um, it depends on the patients, and the genetic factor is one that hasn't been explored sufficiently. When I interviewed Tom Frieden in 2016, I asked him that precise question, which is, uh, how can we arm ourselves with genomic or genetic data um, to help mitigate and minimize the impact of what he predicted, what Tony Fauci predicted, what others predicted would be the next pandemic. And it really doesn't seem like the Human Genome Project has been, at least to the public at large, deployed in a way that could be useful. Is that just because it's not advanced enough yet for us to know how genetically we can help ourselves? Well, actually, there have been some pretty important uh, genetic discoveries along the way. And, and remember, you know, it takes a little bit of time and all this is happening so quickly. But, you know, just yesterday uh, in the journal Nature, which along with science are the two top uh, science journals in the world, in, in Nature it was reported that there's a cluster of genes on chromosome 3 that actually have been inherited from Neanderthals, uh, which are tied to severe covid and are frequent in uh, South Asians with almost 50% are carriers for that. And in Europe, 15%. So we have one common uh, genetic uh, locus that's uh, implicated. We also just last week learned that 10% of people have antibodies to their interferon. And interferon is the first line of defense. It's, uh, it's our innate immunity. And those people can get very sick with, with COVID. So, you know, we're chipping away at it, Alexander. I mean, uh, I, I think we have rare uh, gene variants that we understand uh, in, in the interferon pathway. We have some blood uh, group, the ABO blood group that are tied into this, not in a big way, but at least in a contributory way. So over time, we're going to keep making uh, dents in this. And, and, you know, I think we'll have a It'll probably never be a full understanding, but we'll make lots more progress. And that leads me to ask you about therapeutics, because initially there had been kind of an equal investment in the probability that you could find some medical treatment, if not cure, that would be successful for enough of the infected population. And that kind of took a detour into a much heavier discussion on vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, do your mind, have, have folks given up on the idea that a drug or a therapeutic could be sufficiently effective um, in, in addressing this? Uh, why did the therapeutic conversation uh, seem to, to evaporate? Well, I, I think it's actually ongoing. It may not be getting the priority uh, as the vaccines, because the vaccines are the long-term solution. Um, and that's going to take a while to get that uh, implemented, of course. And, and we don't even know if we'll be fully successful because it requires the, the majority, you know, 60, 70, 80% of people to uh, get the vaccines. And on a probably booster basis, you know, for every year or two uh, along the way. But in the meantime, there are a lot of promising drugs. Um, not only do we know at least for dexamethasone in severe COVID, but, you know, a very promising therapy, we, we were just talking about interferons, but inhaled interferons early, 
may wind up being very protective. And so if we get people, as soon as they have the diagnosis made, to use that inhaled therapy, we might be blocking this disease progression uh, quite a bit. So, you know, there's preliminary data, uh, small trials uh, that look good. And also we discussed not only the monoclonal antibodies that are just, you know, pure, potent antibodies that are uh, just take out the virus, and that will likely um, be available, you know, by the end of the year in January. So I think we'll see more repurposing of drugs that we uh, have already been explored, but now be applied to COVID. We'll have the antibodies and so-called nanobodies, which are proteins that could be made at scale, unlike the antibodies that are harder to make uh, large quantities. And we have these bridging ways to get to the vaccine uh, full implementation. So, you know, I'm very optimistic that this part of the science uh, will help us uh, so that we ultimately will we'll get there uh, sometime, you know, in, in next year, we'll be in a far better position than we are right now. But given the skepticism about vaccinations and the disinformation, which is, um, you know, depending upon the political outcome, as you suggest, uh, it could go in one of two directions. There could be even more skepticism and disinformation, or there can be some uh, fact-based policy and public understanding. Um, but given that the that one of those outcomes is just a further deterioration of public health and public health understanding, um, to what extent can the therapeutic side of things um, bolster our mitigation. Um, we, we know about social distancing, contact tracing, and mask wearing, but is there a therapeutic or set of therapeutics that could work well even in the absence of a vaccination uh, because it's not effective or because people refuse to get it? Yeah, well, you know, if you, you want to get like the ideal scenario, uh, we have rapid tests. Uh, at everyone's home that, uh, you know, our paper tests like a pregnancy test and you get the answer in 15, 20 minutes. And if you are positive and that's verified, you then either, you know, inhale some interferon if that's proven ultimately to work. You could even do a self-injection of a of a uh, an antibody or nanobody uh, and you don't ever get sick. I mean, you know, so that would get us through uh, to a point uh, where, the toll of this disease of COVID could be really um, be reduced dramatically. So, you know, the question is, well, are, we up, are we up to the task? Are we able to exactly. rise to this occasion? And so far we have a lot of evidence that we can rally. I would love you to elaborate on what you just said, that ideal scenario and how we get there. Yeah. So what I would envision is that if we did this right, and instead of pouring trillions of dollars, and we don't even know where those trillions of dollars are going, frankly, we would actually devote resources to fulfill the dream scenario where every uh, household would get, you know, a very good supply of home tests to see whether they're infectious. And if that means they're carrying a high viral load and they didn't know it because a lot of people without symptoms would be doing that. And the moment that that's verified, they would also have in their kits that are sent to every home 
uh, they would have, you know, a dose of uh, an inhaled interferon to help boost their chances of never letting the virus, you know, take control, uh, hijacking parts of their body like their lungs or elsewhere. Um, and they, they may also be able to give a, a self-injection of a, uh, either a protein uh, that would be simulating the monoclonal antibody or the antibody itself. So that basically once you, you, you either were able to go to work or home based on the test, or you took therapy or therapy so that you couldn't get sick, even though you stayed home for a few days or however long it took to no longer be infectious. And basically, you know, you have home kits that are not relying on uh, the things that we rely on today, which are just not even accessible, hard to get testing, hard to get anything. So this could be done if we had the will. Um, and it would override the kind of ch- the logistical challenges that we have in such a big country of 330 million people. What are the central obstacles to achieving that dream scenario? Well, we have anti-science. We have uh, funds that are being diverted in w- all which ways that I have no idea. I don't think anybody does except for perhaps some people in the administration. Uh, so, the obstacles are, you know, maybe the misuse or misapplication of resources and an administration that doesn't get it. That is, the home test should have been approved back in April. April, they were ready. And, you know, we still don't have an FDA path to get them approved. And so there's this catch-22, Alexander, where if you can't have a regulatory path, you, the, these companies and startups can't make hundreds of thousands of test kits for people to use at their home, and they, even, they can't get funding to do that. So everything's held up at the level of the government because they just don't get it, how important testing is. I mean, you've heard the president saying, don't, we shouldn't test, then we won't have cases. I mean, this is ignorant. So we need the opposite of that. We need, you know, real intelligence. Are there any countries that are inching towards the model you describe? Well, most countries are better off because they achieve containment of the virus, at least. Right. There are a few countries now that are seeing, you know, rebounds or second waves uh, like Spain and France and Czech Republic. But for the most part, most countries have done a, a pretty good job now of either initially preventing uh, big surges or getting containment. Uh, they are uh, all interested in rapid testing. But, you know, even places as remote as Senegal in Africa can get a turnaround time of three hours or less. We can't even get five days in this country. So, yeah, around the world, uh, South Korea, you know, was the first to implement uh, two-hour turnaround tests early on in the pandemic. You know, by the first month, they were already into that. So we have the innovation. We have the ingenuity, but we just have roadblocks galore. And I understand the reality we have to acknowledge in this country about the failure to be disciplined in our mitigation Uh, But what you're describing about at-home testing and potential immediate treatment for any infected individuals, is it really the pharmaceutical industrial complex that is preventing that ultimately in the current public policy? Because this is being viewed as we need Johnson & Johnson or we need Pfizer to get us the vaccine. And that you say you, you're, we don't know where the funding is going, but 
isn't it exclusively being directed towards that uh, corporatist model that you know is is not in informing individual homes and arming individuals and families right. with the testing treatment that they need. Right. Well, you know, I think what's been clear, there's been an investment in the vaccine programs, which is, that's good. I mean, we want them to succeed. And a lot of that is, you know, milestone investments based on that they prove safety and efficacy. But what I'm talking about are the trillions of dollars, I mean, trillions that were, you know, given to companies. And, you know, when we saw things like given to the, uh, uh, sports world, you know, I mean, crazy things where who knows, we, we still don't have accountability where these trillions of dollars have gone. And why isn't that being directed to democratizing, making people more autonomous and in charge? Because when they're in charge, they're going to be a lot more plugged into what's needed to help prevent, you know, work together and help prevent the spread uh, and also the return to pre-COVID life. So there's just not the, the support of this path. Uh, it's, it's all a kind of top-down, we're going to invest in, uh, you know, things uh, that are basically uh, industry rather than in people uh, and homes yeah. uh, and households. So this is a real, I think, a misallocation of resources. And when you refer to the missing dollars and cents, the, the lack of, of transparency. Are you referring to the specific legislation that was approved in the immediate aftermath of, of COVID? Right. Um, yeah, the PPP. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we started to find out some of the companies that were going to get uh, funds and then they, that once they were, they were exposed, they, they said, Oh, we don't want the funds, but who knows was on that list. It's never been disclosed as far as I know. And that list also was to help stimulate the economy that was suffering or anticipating shutdowns and a continuity of shutdown. And, you know, what, what struck me from the outset was the real denial of the problem. The, the, the problem initially was we had valiant first responders going out and doing God's work in the field and not just doctors, grocery attendants, and everybody else. And, you know, the simple thing would have been, we need to fund the transportation of essential workers. Right, um, right. We shouldn't have to... Well, and we should have given N95 masks, um, you know, a big a bo- a bunch of them to each essential worker, healthcare worker, uh, and, you know, on a, on a renewing supply. And ideally, to every American, the best quality mask would be supplied. And that's in Japan, they gave out 50 million households a mask. So, you know, we just haven't uh, at all prioritized the, the people that, that are, you know, out there that are at risk. Uh, and, you know, we could do so much better if we were. And not only that, but as you well know, all the things that we know help to prevent spread, like, you know, don't prematurely open uh the economy or schools or, you know, do do it when you get containment. We have never had any sense of containment. The lowest we ever got since the beginning of the pandemic was 20,000 plus new infections per day. Right now we're still over 40, 45 new infections per day. You can't do contact tracing. You can't get your arms around this. And here we are trying to defy it by doing things we know won't work. It's like, you know, recreating the crime or, you know, how many times you have to replicate your mistakes. And these are unfortunate because all the other things we've talked about, 
which are superimposed, like, you know, the drugs and uh, ultimately, you know, vaccines, we could do so much better if we took this seriously. And, you know, by the way, no one wants a, a protracted lockdown, but first uh, you use the guidelines, get the caseload and infection rate down before you start to attempt to do these things. Final question, doctor. I had asked you at the beginning if this was the most anti-science climate in American history or maybe our lifetimes, but do you think we're, we're even worse off than we were in 1918? I mean, the, the public sentiment then was more science, even though that science was newer in a sense. Um, do you think we're even worse off than we were then? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to know. I wasn't here then, but uh, I, I would say that there's so many parallels that, you know, in 1918, the things that worked were masks and distancing. And the places that did that uh, in the U.S., you know, did really quite well. They didn't have diagnostic kits for the virus. They didn't have, you know, ability to do, to make antibodies and, uh, and uh, the vaccines. I mean, there was no molecular biology then. So the things that could work now, we're not even doing these, these so-called non-pharmacologic interventions, avoiding crowds, um, indoors, the ventilation, the aerosol transmission. I mean, we're so smart about what causes this spread, but yet overall so stupid about doing things. Hopefully we, we can learn from our mistakes and our mistakes are really in many respects a replication of those that were made over a hundred years ago. Doctor, thank you so much for your insight today. Sure. Enjoyed the discussion with you, Alexander.